Hey, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 2. And you remember that Peter has shown us already that we are the result of a tremendous act of God's mercy. He sent His Son to be raised from the dead and therefore raised us from the dead. And He gave us new birth. And all of this so that we might be called out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what we had in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. God called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why? So that we might praise Him. And then when you get to verse 11 and 12, we saw kind of the hinge verses in this entire letter. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So we saw that we are... Aliens and strangers, we're pilgrims in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're passing through here. And we're to live in such a way that the unbelievers can see something distinctive about our lives. Because after all, we were called out of the darkness of the world into the light of Christ. So our lives are to be very distinctive. People should be able to look at us even without believing what we believe and notice that there's something unique about our lives. That's what Peter is saying. So that they will glorify God on the day He visits us, whether He visits us in revival or when He visits us at the last day in judgment. We will have portrayed Christ in the way that we live. Okay, fair enough. So we know this is going to be a radical challenge. Because we are the people that are called out of this world to be God's distinctive people. So what's the challenge going to be? How are we going to display the glory of God? Well, you look at the first word in our text today. Submit. Oh, come on. I thought it was going to be a little bit more fun than that. Submit. Well, let's read the text. It's interesting. This is the first thing Peter mentions. When he talks about the distinctive Christian life, let's look at it. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Submit yourselves. The Christian life is a submissive life. The Christian life is a submissive life. That may not be what you wanted to come to Amen Bible study to hear this morning, but it's the first thing in the code of ethics of the Apostle Peter. 
There was a man who went to heaven. He met St. Peter at the gate. St. Peter said there are two, two lines here. And you can choose which line you're going to enter into. One over here is for henpecked husbands and one over here for non-henpecked husbands. And everybody got in the henpecked husband line except for one guy. He got over there in the non-henpecked husband line and Peter goes up to him and says, so how come you're over in this line? He said, she told me to. Um, uh, There's more henpecking going on than we realize. But when we realize it, we usually get pretty angry about it. Some of us are active aggressive and some of us are passive aggressive, but nobody really likes to submit. You probably heard the story of the, the guy who went into the breakfast diner. He was a truck driver. And he sat down by himself at the bar, got his eggs and grits and his sausage, had his hot coffee going and some toast and jelly. And in comes 12 guys looking like the Hell's Angels, just got getting off their motorcycles. And they, they look at him. He's the only other guy in the diner. And they think they'll make a little sport of him. So they, they take his coffee and they pour it on his head and say, Hey, how's your morning going? You wake it up with the coffee? And then they take his eggs and they scrub it on the back of his neck. And then they, they take the rest of his grits and they just pour it down the front of his face with just, just hanging off the end of his nose. He doesn't, he doesn't say a thing. Doesn't. Doesn't pick a fight with him, doesn't complain, just finishes, you know, his glass of water and he walks out with grits hanging off his nose and eggs on his back of his neck. And the motorcyclists are sitting around the diner after he left and they were saying to the guy who, who, who's the cook there, he said, gosh, that guy was a wimp. I've never seen a, a meeker, more submissive wimp in my life. And the cook says, yeah, he's a terrible driver too. He just ran over 12 motorcycles. <laughs> We uh, have our ways, don't we? Uh, either active-aggressive or passive-aggressive, one way or the other. We do not like to submit. And there's a sense in which to submit to us means to be humiliated and demeaned. And yet, when we come to the Scriptures, we find that this is exactly our calling. Does it mean that we're weak? Does it mean that we're cowardly? No. You know that it doesn't mean that. In fact, you know that it takes the the strongest man to know how to submit in the proper way. However, when I look at this text and read several commentators, which I have done uh, on this text, I usually do. I probably read a few more this time than usual because I was interested in this, this issue. I find that most of the commentators have ways of trying to get around it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's just look at the word submit. In Greek, it's hupo tasso, hupo tasso, and it's made up of two words. Hupo, or it looks like hypo there. That's where we get our hypo. It's hupo in Greek, just means under, and tasso means to place or to order or to appoint. So you put them together, and to submit means to order oneself under a given relationship. So we order ourselves under another person, or we are ordered under another person. So it's being under somebody, and men don't have a way of wanting to be under. Unless it's a position, forget it. Um, But here are the attempts to explain this away. Some people will say the first century was so radically different from the 21st century that it really can't be applied in our own day. And here's how the argument goes that the first century governments and first century masters were so brutal and oppressive and tyrannical that, of course, the underling had to submit for their own survival. But in our day, living in a liberal democracy, and in our day where we understand consensual leadership quite differently, those sorts of warnings would not apply to us because we're meant to be unsubmissive in certain instances. And the argument continues that Peter's intent was that the church survive. And if the church is not submissive, 
as slaves to their masters, those slaves will not exist very long. And if the citizens of Rome in eastern Turkey are not submissive to the Roman government, they will not survive either. And Peter was concerned about the survival of the church. And the argument continues. But in our day, this is not a concern. Christians can be civilly disobedient in a number of ways and can even be disobedient in the workplace in a number of ways. And the survival of the church and even the reputation of the church is not at stake because, obviously, once again, in a liberal democracy, as Jefferson said, we need to revolt every once in a while. And so Christians actually uphold their reputation by being civilly disobedient. Now, that's the way the argument goes. Now, certainly, we will remind ourselves this morning of the difference between the first century and the 21st century. And those things are always taken into account when you lift a teaching out of the first century and you place it back in the 21st century. You must be very careful to lift it out correctly and to apply it and place it back in time very carefully. That's called hermeneutics. Exegesis is finding out what the text meant in its own day. Hermeneutics is applying that text to today. So we have to be very careful. The problem with that sort of analysis is that Peter gave his own reasons in this text why we should submit. And it is not for our survival. It is to please God. And so we must be very careful when we begin explaining away difficult concepts that we don't like. Secondly, sometimes folks will try to explain things away by saying that submission actually compromises equality. And of course, we'll get to this next week when we talk about the marriage relationship. And there are great objections to the teaching that one human being and one adult human being should submit to another adult human being. It's considered humiliating and demeaning. And it compromises the concept of equality between man and wife, uh, uh, man and uh, woman, uh, husband and wife. But as we're going to see, that teaching is contrary to that of the Scriptures, which teaches that it is possible to be equal and to be in submission. It better be. Otherwise, we're going to have a greater problem than we came here with because all of us know our wives are probably higher quality people than we are. So how, how is it that someone who's higher quality is supposed to submit to someone who's not up to the same level? A woman told me one time, why do I want to be equal with my husband? Why would I want to come down to that level? Uh, but the reason that we know that submission does not compromise equality is this. Fundamentally, you have the same question in the Godhead. The Son submits to the Father, but He is co-equal with the Father. He is equally glorious with the Father. The Scriptures teach us that, and yet the Son willingly submits Himself to His Father. So in the Trinity, you have a form of submission for a functional purpose that does not deny the equality of the persons in the Godhead. So from a philosophical or theological starting point, we would say this second attempt or second excuse to make an attempt to explain away submission really doesn't work at all. So I suggest that we keep in our minds the significant differences between 1st century and 21st century that we'll discuss this morning and keep in mind that when we submit to someone, it does not make us less of a person. As we're going to see, it actually makes us the followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And we are His brothers. Now, why is submission so difficult for us? I'd like to give you three reasons. First of all is our pride. Secondly is our pride. And thirdly is our pride. Other than that, we don't really have a problem with submission. Now let's look at the text. 
Verses 13 through 17 teach us that we submit to all proper governing authorities. Submit yourselves to every authority institute among men. Literally, the text says, submit yourselves to every human creation. And the NIV has, has assumed, I think probably rightly, they were talking about institutions that we create. You could even say, if you want to translate it in one way, submit yourselves to every human being. So wherever submission is called for in any human relationship, we always offer it. As Paul says, give respect to where respect is due. Give honor to where honor is due. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is that there are uh, qualifications. And some, once again, who want to get away from the idea of our being submissive to governing authorities and elected officials would say that in Peter's day, they could not speak out against the government. And in our day, we're expected to speak out against the government. Therefore, this text doesn't apply. And I would say, hang on just a minute. They spoke out against the government in Peter's day, too. How do you think Peter ended up being crucified upside down? How do you think Paul was beheaded? How do you think Thomas was stoned? How do you think Andrew was crucified? How do you think Philip was crucified? How do you think that Bartholomew was flayed alive? How do you think these men lost their lives? Because they spoke out. And the government didn't like it. So I'm afraid that doesn't apply. In the first century, they did at times disobey the government. Just as we must at times disobey the government. The reason is that we fear unconditionally God alone. There is only one being that we give unqualified obedience and fear to. And that's the Lord. That means that every other form of submission is contingent. It's qualified by our relationship to God. So when we submit to governing authorities, of course, normally speaking, drive down the streets, speed limit 40 miles an hour. Okay, 40 miles an hour. That's hard for me to say. It makes me a hypocrite. But it's true, isn't it? Normally, we're given the law and the statutes, and it's a no-brainer, and we submit in the Lord. But if the government says that you're not allowed to evangelize, if the government says that you must do something that God forbids, or you cannot do something that God requires, you got that? Two things. If they command you to do something God forbids, or forbid something that God requires then you must be disobedient to the civil authorities in your obedience to the Lord. Because you notice, he says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. And as Paul says elsewhere, submit in the Lord. So our submission is always in the Lord. We're we're thoughtful submitters. And when we submit to human authorities, we are submitting consciously Because of Jesus Christ. We have Jesus Christ in our minds. We're submitting to Him. And you could even say to yourself if you want to, or in a quiet whisper, Lord, I'm doing this one for you. But we submit to governing authorities. Why? Because they are, as Paul said, instituted by God. God did not only give us the structure of the home and the structure of the church. He gave us the structure of the state. And he did it for a purpose that we shall see in a few moments. Therefore, it is a divinely ordained structure. Any human authority that has divine ordinance has divine compulsion behind it. So we have qualified obedience just as Moses did when he was before Pharaoh. Just as Paul did before King Agrippa II. Paul was disagreeing with Agrippa. But if you look at Acts 26, you'll see an exquisite demonstration of respect for civil authority from the Apostle Paul while also making very clear the claims of Christ, not only on Paul's life, but on the king's life. 
And you look at Acts 26, the latter half of it sometime, and you'll see how careful Paul was not even to humiliate King Agrippa II. In fact, in part of his argument, he's really arguing with King Agrippa, but he argues with Festus, who's a lesser governor, because he wants to make his point, so he does it to Festus without confronting the king, but he does it in the king's hearing. Just look at what Paul does. You'll see how careful he was to uphold all civil authority. I was in a meeting one time that was a meeting to try to uh, get financial support and rally personal support to promote uh, life in our community. It wasn't here in Memphis. It was in another city. And uh, it was, you know, an attempt to try to bring to cessation the hundreds of abortions that were being committed in our community. And one of the leaders on the board of directors of this organization was talking about the American government and how we, through our Supreme Court uh, rulings, had now allowed children to be killed. And he had an American flag and he threw it over in the corner. And I went to him after that meeting. I said, this is the last meeting I'm going to unless there is a public apology for showing such disrespect for our governing authorities, even when they're wrong. You do not take the flag and go throw it over in the corner as a statement of dissidence to the decisions they've made. There's a way in which Christians do that, and that's not the way we do it, is to diss the authorities. After all, do you know who the authority was when Peter was writing this letter? Nero! Awful, horrible Nero, who was atrocious in the way that he dealt with Christians and anybody who opposed him. He was brutal, violent. And he says, submit yourselves to every human institution. So the way in which we appeal when we have a strong opposition to a decision of the Supreme Court or of the president or the governor or the Congress or anything else is that we appeal. We don't demand. We appeal. And there's a way to do that in the public arena through protests, letters to the editor, letters to the congressman. You can march on Washington. That is not civil disobedience. That's part of public expression that's allowed in our own Constitution, the right of assembly. And we should do all those things. And when we live in a liberal democracy as we do, and not in a tyrannical uh, monarchy as Peter lived in, we must take advantage of our privileges. We must communicate our point of view. But we never do it with a disrespect for the human institutions that are ordained by God. And that is tricky, especially when you're angry and especially when the governor or the justice or the congressman is wrong. It's especially difficult then. And those are the times when our faith is being tested, when it's difficult, as you see in this text. It's difficult when someone's being harsh with you. But this is the very moment that the distinctives of the Christian faith come out. Now this raises questions, of course, about our own revolution, doesn't it? Taxation without representation. Frankly, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad we revolted. I like being an American. But I, I could argue, probably argue either side of that case. Some of you may have strong feelings about that. Send me an email. But I think you... As a Christian, you could argue probably either side of that case. And you know what? Christians were. They were arguing either side of that case during the revolution. It's a difficult thing to decide when you're going to revolt. And then, of course, you get into just war theory. And we won't do that this morning. But when war is being prosecuted or rebellion is being prosecuted, there must be a recognized leader. We had one, George Washington. And there must be prospects for success. And there, there were thin prospects, but prospects for success. Because you don't just take people into rebellion and battle and get them all slaughtered. And there must be a just cause. And there must have been efforts made in every way to right the wrong. So I suppose I would have 
sided with, with the rebels, but I, I'm not always so sure. I'm, I might have been a Tory. When you get to the Civil War, obviously there was a just cause. Uh, not in the, re, in the rebellion, in my opinion, from the South, although the North invaded, but there was a just cause uh, to fight the battle. And there were prospects to win. This I'm speaking from Lincoln's side. So Lincoln had a just cause. I know that his motives weren't perfect. You don't need to send me those emails. But he had a just cause. And he had prospects to win. Uh, and it's, but it's very difficult when you get into these things to do your theology because we all tend to side with whatever side our parents were on. And most of our civil politic and the way in which we reason is a grand defense of our own heritage. That's the way almost everybody does it. And here's what Peter is saying. You're different. You were called out of darkness into His light. And if you're in His light, you are going to be our most critical thinkers in this country. And it's not going to be love it or leave it. It's going to be stay and let's talk about it until we come up with the right answer. Because we know we're not always right. That's the way Christian citizens, Christian men must think. Sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. And we will fight to defend the right. And we will humble ourselves when we are wrong. Some years ago, there was an article in Christianity Today magazine which uh, was entitled, What Jonathan Edwards Can Teach Us About Politics. It's really interesting. And this man, uh, Gerald McDermott, who was a professor at Roanoke College in Virginia, uh, wrote this article, and he said there are really six things that Edwards said. Now, Edwards, you realize, is before 1776. Edwards' ministry was in 1730, 1740, on into 1750. He was the first uh, president of, uh, of Princeton Seminary, or Princeton University, or one of the presidents. Edwards said, first of all, Christians have an obligation to society beyond the walls of the church. That's the first thing. Our obligation goes beyond our own community. We own Memphis. We own Tennessee. We own the USA. We are part of it and we're responsible for it. Secondly, Christians must learn to join forces with non-Christians to work toward common moral goals. Sometimes Christians think they can only work with themselves when they work in the city. But Edwards was saying, no, we build alliances. We build coalitions. We work with non-Christian citizens because we, we are citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of a state. That means that we're citizens with other people and we find people who have common values. When, when we go to war, do we say, is everyone here a Christian? No. We say, is everyone here committed to the values of the Army or the Air Force, the Marines or the Navy? Is everyone here going to do their duty? Does everyone believe in our cause? Then let's go at it. We don't have a test of faith. And I would say the same thing about the presidential election. And I think Christians need to be very careful about applying tests of faith to the presidency and to any elected office. And one of you asked me after church the other day, should Christians vote only for Christians? And the answer is, of course not. There are times when I would vote for a non-Christian over a Christian because I'm looking at the welfare of the United States or the welfare of Memphis or the welfare of our state. And my duty is to project the welfare of this entity under this person's leadership. And there are some Christian men and women who are very fine people, and I don't question their faith at all. They're just not properly gifted. Or they don't have healthy views, policy views on given things. And I would prefer a non-Christian who has healthy policy views and who is properly gifted to run the country. And I believe this is what Edwards is saying. We build coalitions and parties, and so often Christians expect their, the political party to which they belong to have a Christian platform. Now, Christians should always push for moral values in our parties and in our politics that are consistent with our faith. This is what we should do. But we should not expect that if we're building coalitions with non-Christian people, that any party that really represents a cross-section of our country is going to be perfectly and consistently Christian. 
unless God brings a mighty revival to our country, all you have to do is look around and we don't have revival. And therefore, it should be our expectation that we're going to learn the gift of negotiation and persuasion and compromise in order to get the best public policy that we can get. And so I would say, of course, we vote for non-Christians. And whether a person is an evangelical Christian like Mike Huckabee or a Mormon like Mitt Romney or a whatever like Giuliani or, or a Methodist like Hillary, you know, that is not the determining factor, it seems to me, for a Christian who is seeking to decide what is best uh, in the public arena. Now, having said that, it's also true that when I assess a candidate, I'm aware of his deepest convictions or her deepest convictions. And so I want to know what Obama really believes down deep. And I listen to what he says, including about his faith, and then I look at his policy construction in, in his history and I see what's, what's his likely pattern in the future. It's going to be the tracks he laid in the past. So I look at them all that way. And their faith is important to me because it reveals their deepest convictions. But remember, we're not electing a pastor. We're electing a governing official. And there's a, we're not within the church. We're outside the church. And this is what Edwards is saying in his second point. Learn to build alliances. Learn to work on a lower shelf of common values that we can find with people in our society. Certainly, we encourage Christian men to get involved in politics and to run for office. And you've heard me say this before. I believe that men with... Christian convictions and women with Christian convictions should be running for office. And we should encourage them to do so. And we should get behind them if they're properly gifted and so on. But it's simply not the only determining factor in their usefulness. Edwards thirdly said Christians must support their governments, but also be prepared to confront them when necessary. Edwards said that. And Edwards was sort of a aristocracy. He had not yet quite made the transition to a liberal democracy in the early 18th century. And he is even saying we must be devoted to our governments, but learn also to critique them. Christians have a prophetic voice. And certainly you saw that uh, mightily demonstrated during the civil rights uh, uh, confrontations of the middle of the 20th century. And here you had this wonderful Christian example with Dr. King who was speaking out against the government and who was using legal means of assembly to object to unrighteous laws and who even then led into some civil disobedience when the laws were unjust. That's all Christian behavior. And we can see, of course, what good it brought about. And Edwards is saying we submit to governments, but we, can, we, also, we also confront them when necessary. Fourthly, Christians must remember that politics is comparatively unimportant in the long run. And if there's one point Edwards makes that I would stress, it's this one. And I find Christians who will get so worked up about their politics that they act as though this is going to bring back the return of Jesus Christ. It is not, gentlemen. And we need to put things into perspective. Honestly, this past year, I've been wondering what makes certain conservative Christian leaders think that we're all waiting with bated breath to find out who they'll endorse as a presidential candidate. What, you would, if I came to Amen Bible Study and I, I said to you, boy, I, I've, got a, I've got a hotline for this is who I'm going to support, and I recommend him to you all, you say, what has gotten into Wilson? He's trying to tell us how to vote. And you, you know where my expertise is supposed to be is in reading this book, you know, and teaching it. So, Wilson, stick to your knitting. And I would say to Christians, you know, we have an obligation, and it is ultimately to Christ and His kingdom and His great commission and His great commandment. Stick to your knitting. And so your involvement in politics is an inference derived from your first commitment to Christ and the kingdom. It's an inference. And it's important, but it's not ultimate. So when you find your emotions getting all riled up and you find yourself getting profoundly angry at what the pagans are doing in our government, realize that you probably have crossed the line. 
And you have probably made something ultimate that at its best is penultimate. That's secondary. This in no way diminishes our responsibility to the civil government, nor to, to public life, but it's simply to say, as Edwards is, it's not the most important thing. So just singing a little lower key when you're talking about politics. Uh, it's, a, it's an uncertain business made up of uncertain people most of the time. Fifthly, Edward said, Christians should beware of national pride. Now remember, once again, Edwards is in the colonial period. So he, I suppose he's talking about England. But he would be talking about us too, the colonists and then America. Be, watch out for national pride. And I find in conservative Christian circles, which are the circles that I run in in church most of the time, we have a struggle with national pride. We wrap our religion with a flag. And as far as we're concerned, they're inseparable. They're going to be separated one day. You may as well separate them in your mind now. We have an obligation to our country. We have an obligation to our flag. We have an obligation to defend what is right. But these are inferences from our first passionate commitment to stand up for Jesus Christ and promote His kingdom, which is international. So any way in which our national pride is obstructing the multicultural and international mission of the church is idolatry. Sixthly, Edward said, Christians should care for the poor. Christians should care for the poor. This is way before FDR, gentlemen. This is 200 years before FDR. And Edwards is saying that Christians should use their influence to help the poor. Because Edwards is aware that the Bible not only has laws about property and warfare in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament also has laws about the poor and just social justice. So we must be very careful that in our political life, in our advocacy, that we're thinking very carefully about the poor. Now, this is what it means then to submit to all proper governing authorities. A, no matter whether high or low, that is, whether kings or governors, whether President Bush or the local tax assessor, Seriously, they're both elected officials and they both have government authority. And we should show equal respect, whether high or low, because the point is not how prestigious is this person? How much power does this person wield? That's the way a pagan would look at it. But we look at it and say, what is my duty under Christ toward this person? That's the way we look at it. And so we give it whether high or low. And I think this even applies to school teachers. And of course, those of you who are teachers or happen to be married to one will know that parents have changed their strategy in the past several years. It used to be it was always the kid's problem. That was my generation. It was always my fault. And now it's always the teacher's problem. It's always the teacher's fault. And I suspect that part of this is a lack of respect for all human institutions. Secondly, B, they serve for society's sake. They punish those who do wrong. They commend those who do right. That's the purpose of civil government. And this is why God has ordained it. It's for order. And without it, you have chaos. And when Billy Graham went into the Soviet Union 20 years ago and went to the church and preached a sermon on submitting to government authority, the Western Christians went nuts. What a cowardly thing for him to say, they said. He goes to the Soviet Union, this tyrannical state, and he goes to the church and simply tells them to submit to authorities. I thought it was ingenious. Because we need to learn how to submit even when they're harsh. Does that mean we never complain? Does that mean that we never put our life on the line? Does that mean that we never have civil disobedience? No. But it means we have a spirit of submission. Thirdly, we submit for the Lord's sake. First of all, because it is God's will. In one sense, God said it, that does it, fine for me, that's it. If God says it, that should be enough for us. But he goes on to explain in the second half of verse 15 that it silences the ignorant critics. When you 
help with the city and help with the poor. Those who are ignorant of Christ can't help but take notice. And uh, Bruce Winter wrote a book on seeking the welfare of the city, and he recalls uh, through some historical studies how early Christians actually assisted the city government in widening roads, rebuilding theaters, helping the poor. When the price of wheat went up, they sold their wheat at a lower price for the poor. They were called benefactors. And Winter suggests that Peter is talking about the civil government commending those who do good. That is, commending the benefactors. And when you build something at the University of Memphis or help the city do something or get involved in promoting the welfare of this city, Peter says that's a good thing. And it is the civil government's responsibility to commend you. And it will silence the ignorant critics. How so? They'll have to say, we're glad these Christians are here. And gentlemen, the city should be saying that about you and me. They are glad that we're here. Every church that's represented here, and I wish we knew how many, but probably 40 or 50. In every neighborhood where these 40 or 50 churches are, those neighborhoods should be really glad we're there and weep if we ever left. Because we are doing good. Thirdly, it expresses our freedom. You say, this is odd. You're telling me to submit to someone as an expression of my freedom? Exactly. This is not true with the unbeliever. His submission is an expression of his fear. Fear of human beings. Fear of what could happen to them if they don't submit. That's the normal human response. Our submission is different because of why we're doing it. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, live as free men. You're free. In one sense, you're not under the judgment of any human authority. You go before the judge and he says, guilty. And you say, no, not really. Jesus Christ died for all my guilt. I don't have any guilt. You don't say that, but you're thinking that inside. No one defines you. No one can convict you. Paul says, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? The charges are gone because the penalty has been paid. You're free. Free as a bird. But then he says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So I don't diss the judge and say, you know what, judge, you really don't have any power over me. Well, now there's a sense in which that's correct. But I will be using my freedom as a cover-up for disobedience and an unsubmissive spirit. Don't do that. Because he goes on to say, live as servants of God. So he says, it sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Live as free men, live as servants. This is the point. We are free. And we do not submit because we're afraid of men. We submit because we fear God. And we are bound to Him. And therefore, we're free of the judgments of men. And therefore, we can freely go into submissive relationships. The reason you have a hard time submitting is because you're actually afraid of men. It's your pride that is roused up with fear. And you're afraid someone's going to dominate you. When you're confident in Christ, the the men who are the most submissive in a biblical way are the most confident men. It's always true. How can you get that kind of confidence? Study how God loves you. He's the king of the universe. You're his son. Nobody's going to destroy you. He's got his hands on you. He's protecting you. You don't have anything to fear. And therefore, it doesn't bother me to submit to anybody when I have that kind of attitude. So it expresses our freedom. Fourthly, it expresses our respect for all people. And here he summarizes it in verse 17, doesn't he? Show respect, show proper respect to everybody. To believers, fear God and fear Him alone, and then honor the government officials. Show respect for everybody. They're human beings made in God's image, and you're His child. Okay, then we come to this second section, which talks about our submission in the workplace. We submit to turkeys, twits, and blowhards. Uh, other names are bosses uh, there. And some days I'm a turkey, some days I'm a twit, some days I'm a blowhard. So are you. And so is your, your boss if you have one. Uh, and as one of you said to me, everybody needs a boss, including senior ministers. So I'm assuming even if you're a CEO, you have a boss. And if you're a chairman of the board, you've got a board. Everybody needs a boss. 
And uh, Christians specifically address the case of the subordinate. In pagan ethics, there were instructions for the, the, the one in charge, the boss, the master. And there were many instructions. The Christians distinctively gave equal treatment to masters and slaves. And in this case, it's all about slaves because it seems that the church to which Peter is writing was made up largely of women and slaves. So he's talking to the slaves and gives them very careful instructions. Praise be to the Lord that when we're in submissive relationships, God cares intently, not just about what we do, but why we do it. So first of all, in verse 18, we submit regardless of the abilities or character of our boss. Now, here's a qualification. We obviously live in a free country. You should be looking for a job where you can be effective to the best of your ability, which means you should know your abilities and you should know your weaknesses. And after being in pastoral ministry for 26 years maybe, 25 or 26 years, I've come to know my weaknesses and my strengths. I'm sure I don't know them all in either case, but I know most of them. And therefore, it's incumbent upon me as I have freedom to do so to put myself in situations where I can maximize my strengths and make my weaknesses irrelevant. And you should do the same too. You live in a free country. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a slave, be a good one. But if you get your opportunity to go free, take your freedom. So I say the same thing to you in the workplace. Submit to your boss. If, however, you find a place where you'd be more content or you'd find your gifts being used better, use your freedom. You're not obligated to stay in that job. We live in a liberal democracy. But the principle is the same. While you're in that job, then regardless of your boss's abilities or his character, then we should offer true submission out of the fear of God. It's because we fear God, B. He says with all respect, or it's literally all fear, and I believe that fear is for God. And here's why it's in our fear of God. First of all, he commends unjust suffering. He commends it. He says this is commendable before God. It's not commendable if you get disciplined or punished or penalized because of something you did wrong. All we do there is repent, ask for forgiveness, make restitution, and go on. But if you were mistreated, and you humbled yourself and did not retaliate, this is commendable to God. Secondly, He calls us to unjust suffering. You say, what? He calls us to injustice? Yes. And of course, it was more explicit in the first century than it is in the 21st century here in the States. But nonetheless, there are injustices that have come upon you because you're a believer. And when we submit to these in a godly way, fearing Christ, not retaliating, we are fulfilling our calling. You say, why would that be? Here's why. Because of Jesus Christ. Number three, He commands us to imitate Christ. This is exactly what Christ did. You see how this is distinctively Christian? How you have a framework for thinking about healthy submission where we're not wallflowers, we're not doormats, We speak up at the risk of our jobs. We speak up at the risk of our lives. We're willing to lay our lives down for what is right. But it's all with a submissive spirit. We're not trying to take anybody else's job. We're not trying to bring them down. We're not trying to retaliate. We're not trying to justify our own pride. We're trying to fulfill our duty before God. And the reason is this is exactly what Christ did. He left us an example. Now notice negatively what Christ didn't do. He didn't commit sin. There was no deceit. He didn't go passive aggressive on us against Pilate or Herod or Annas or Caiaphas. There was no retaliation. He didn't say, I'm going to get you. There There were no threats. In fact, they were amazed that he was silent and didn't defend himself. So negatively, look at the example of Christ. This is the reason we do what we do is to demonstrate Christ because we're in Him and He's in us. Positively, notice this, He trusted God's judgment. He didn't have to have perfect justice in this life. Listen, if you follow Christ, this is one of the distinctives of 
implementing justice on the earth. It is to wait. We seek to bring justice wherever we can, whether it has to do with the poor or racial inequities or gender inequities or power plays or politics. We seek to bring justice, but we're not going to bring it completely in this life and we learn to wait. Why is it? Those of you who are African-Americans, why is it that in your Christian tradition you have some of these great spiritual songs that talk about heaven? Why do we talk about heaven so much? Why is that such a gift to the church today? Because we're all being reminded that perfect justice can only come in the final day. That's exactly what Jesus did. Notice also, He paid for other sins. By His doing this, He actually advanced the cause of other people, which is what we're here for. And when we go in submissive, unsubmissive, we're simply promoting ourselves. We're not promoting the cause of other people. Look what Jesus did. He died for us. And then thirdly, notice, He brought us to God. It was effective. We're saved, actually, by the humility and the submission of Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. How is the world going to be saved? Through men and women who take that same humility and proper induced submission and they work it out in this life. The message will be demonstrated and proclaimed. The message of Jesus Christ with people who take His yoke upon them and find that it fits. So we walk with Jesus Christ because it is a salvific walk that changes the world. I believe that's why Peter started in his ethical teaching to us with submission. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and pray that we may work it out both in the workplace and in the community. Please help us to learn more deeply with every year that we live how to be salt and light, transforming agents, in the society in which you've placed us so that we have impact upon the world around us. Teach us how to do that so that we never deny the very core values and the essence of the character of Jesus Christ. Teach us, O oh Lord, the, the nuances of this life and light to which we've been called that we may please you. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents.